This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Saturday, March 2nd, 2024. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. The fight for the presidency went south to Texas this past week as President Biden tried to put the border ball in Republicans' court. Former President Trump put the migrant crisis squarely on Biden. You had Biden saying, work with me, Mr. Trump. Let's do what's best for America. But then in Eagle Pass, Trump, at almost the exact same time, was calling the migrant crisis Joe Biden's invasion and blaming the president. I'm Jared Halpern. The longest-serving Senate leader ever is stepping aside, sending shockwaves across the Beltway. Father time remains undefeated. I'm no longer the young man sitting in the back, hoping colleagues would remember my name. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. This past week, President Biden made the second trip of his presidency to the border. And after meeting with border agents, ICE agents, asylum officers and others in operational briefings in Brownsville, Texas, he said they all need more resources. You need more agents, more officers, more judges, more equipment in order to secure our border. Folks, it's time for us to move on this. We can't wait any longer. Over 300 miles away in Eagle Pass, former President Trump put all of the blame for millions of people entering the country, claiming asylum and being told to show up for a hearing years later on President Biden. But this is a Joe Biden invasion. This is a Biden invasion over the past three years. He referenced crimes committed by illegal aliens, including the suspect in the murder of University of Georgia nursing student Lakin Riley. Joe Biden will never say Lakin Riley's name. But we will say it and we will remember it. We're not going to forget her. It's been just a horrible story that we've had to live with for the last few days. It's hard to believe. And her parents are just, they can never be the same. While Trump criticized Biden, Biden criticized Republicans for failing to pass a border bill that he says after more than three years into his presidency would have addressed many of the issues at the border. But when he mentioned the bill, he also talked to former President Trump directly. Set a plan politics issue. Instead of telling members of Congress to block this legislation, join me or I'll join you in telling the Congress to pass this bipartisan border security bill. So will an attempt to put the ball on this in Republicans' court matter politically? And would former President Trump ever work with President Biden? Well, if I'm being honest about it, I'd say probably not. Griff Jenkins is a Fox News correspondent and co-anchor of Fox News Live. He's been reporting live from the border. I mean, what we witnessed on Thursday was truly something like out of a old Western gunslinger showdown. You know, you had President Trump in Eagle Pass, which was certainly uh, the epicenter of the unprecedented migrant crisis. I've spent most of September and October in Eagle Pass when you had more than 2,000 on multiple days cross right in that area under that bridge. And as I was there reporting, Jessica, 
I literally knew because I'm with the Border Patrol agents that there were only six or eight, no more than 12 Border Patrol agents on shift at any given time dealing with upwards of 2,000 people. And it was such a unbelievable snapshot of how the cartels and the migrant crisis had just overwhelmed our capacity there. And it really opened the eyes for the country. But then, of course, go back to, to Thursday and you saw Trump in Eagle Pass standing there where Texas has put up miles of razor wire to literally shut it down to a trickle, a drop in a bucket, just a few hundred at most on any given day in that area. And Biden came to Brownsville, which even before that migrant crisis in Eagle Pass, Brownsville was the epicenter. If you remember, just as Title 42 was ending, right where I'm standing right now at this moment, along a levee, we had Fox's drone uh, up in the sky, and you were seeing hundreds of migrants coming across there. Uh, DHS Secretary Mayorkas and then Border Patrol Chief Earl Ortiz came down. I interviewed them when they were here on the ground talking about the crisis. So then you had Trump and Biden giving these dueling speeches. And in, of course, as you mentioned, Biden's speech, he called out his predecessor. And by the way, the two towns are separated by about 300 miles. You had Biden saying, work with me, Mr. Trump. Let's do what's best for America. But then in Eagle Pass, Trump, at almost the exact same time, was calling the migrant crisis Joe Biden's invasion and blaming the president. And clearly what you were witnessing was a, a, a political, dueling political speeches. And the, the, the weaker position, if you will, was probably the current president, Joe Biden's position, because you see poll after poll just had a Gallup poll this week saying that the top issue by 28 percent was immigration. The first time in Gallup's history that immigration has surged to the top like that. And so, you know, the Biden campaign knows that they are vulnerable in this. And clearly, President Trump is showing no indication of wanting uh, Republicans to work with with Biden uh, in an election year. So I'm not terribly optimistic that that anything is going to happen or that any sort of bipartisan legislation can get uh, any daylight right now because of how high the election stakes are. Now, we could talk separately about what President Trump could possibly do if he gets back into office. But short of that, it's pretty clear that the Biden administration is going to have to take some sort of of executive order action to at least have the appearance that they're trying to bring numbers down because all of the chaos in all of the months I spent in Texas, it's moved out west. Griff, it it, it is interesting. So President Biden made this point that as he received his operational briefing, he was saying, everyone keeps telling me they need more resources, more resources, but you need more resources precisely because of how many people are flowing into the country, there was no discussion, at least in prepared remarks that, that I heard about, um, you know, using the, the pen, using the authority to issue an executive order. But he has wide authority, right? I mean, we saw it under former President Trump, much to just our discussion about remain in Mexico. I mean, you, if you want to do something, you could. So, Jessica, that, that's such 
a critical and important point to make. With the stroke of a pen, you would think he could allocate. And when we talk about resources, there's two specific areas that the officials are saying they need to help. One is in the manpower, and that is agents, Border Patrol agents, CBP officers. The other are asylum officers, asylum judges, to more quickly approve or disapprove. And then the third uh, end of this are the ICE uh, capacity for both detention space and removal flights. And clearly a congressional additional funding could do that. But, you know, when you're president of the United States, you can move allocations around. You can do things to try and stop it. But the one thing about resources that wasn't mentioned, left out of the president's remarks, and a big part of what the border officials will tell you is when you have the Border Patrol agents dealing, and in, in, in an exclusive interview a few days ago with the Border Patrol chief, Jason Owens, he told me as much. He said, you know, border security is the fundamental, a fundamental component of national security. And we need more resources to do that. But when the current resources are being used, Border Patrol agents, that is, to transport and process migrants and not being out in areas where we don't have awareness, where you've got bad actors coming across and drugs and contraband, that really is the, the shift that's got to change. But until policies change, which this administration favors, a release policy into the country with notices to appear, alternatives to detention, you, you, you can't really, having more, more agents to do the same thing, you're still right. leaving wide open those vulnerabilities where those that don't want to apprehend, which many are, uh, have criminal histories and, and the like, that you're not, you're not solving the fundamental problem of security. So, Griff, speaking of that part, it was Trump who mentioned Lake and Riley, right? And and the the growing number of victims of undocumented migrant crime. If such crimes continue, God forbid, um, this is an issue for President Biden, right? Because these are people who committed crimes, at least thus far, who were here before that border bill failed that Biden keeps pressing for. That bill wouldn't stop the crimes being committed by people who arrived here before that border bill tanked. He, how much of an issue... Are, are the, the security issues within the United States, these crime issues? These are real issues, Jessica, and these are paramount issues. And I don't know if, you know, you may have seen the pool camera as the president left. He took no questions from the press. But, of course, we in the press pool will shout questions and sometimes he answers. <laughs> and you could hear on camera, I shouted my question, which was, I said, Mr. President, do you bear any responsibility for Lake and Riley's death as a result of your policies. He turned and he walked away and ignored me. But it really strikes at the point of Lake and Riley is just one of many instances we had in the same week of Lake and Riley's death. We are seeing what's playing out near Washington, D.C. and in Prince George's County, Maryland, uh, an El Salvadoran migrant that was released in the, the, the community. Uh, killing a two-year-old toddler, allegedly uh, suspect in the murder of the toddler, down in Louisiana, another migrant from Honduras uh, accused of raping at knife point, a 14-year-old. So there are 
so many instances of the past two years of, of these migrants being released into the country that are now committing these crimes. And it is important to point out, as the administration often notes, it is accurate that the majority of the those that are here for whatever reason, that they're seeking a better life, that's not enough for asylum, but in fairness to them, they're not criminals. But yet there is a certain percentage. And look no further than ICE's fiscal year-end report for 2023. You can look on there. Literally on page 15, they break down the migrants that they were apprehend, able to apprehend. They're among them like 1,600 homicides, 1,700 rapes uh, that, that, that they removed. They went out in the community, apprehended migrants that have been released in the country, and then arrested them and ultimately removed them from the country. But the question is, how many did we not get? And how many mm-hmm. are lo- going to commit future uh, offenses? And that's the threat to communities. And it's important also to note, I think, Jessica, that the biggest threat to any community is actually the migrant community, because when they're illegal, they go into their migrant communities in whatever city they're in. And so those migrants that are non-citizens that aren't criminals but are living with them are at the greatest risk, not Mm -hmm. just the community at large. Griff, just a couple more for you. A a recent Monmouth poll finds, um, I think it's 53% now want a wall completed. That's compared to 42% who said so in 2019. So a, a sizable chunk of people now want a wall built, more so than what we have. Trump notably went to an area that's now sealed up more Right. That Shelby Park area. Um, what does this mean? What does it, that say about the efforts to construct fencing, put up concertina wire, even if it results in a fight with the federal government um, and this growing maybe appetite for more security? It, it says a lot. And I'm glad you raised that point, because where I am right now physically at Camp Monument, where I was just mentioning Back in May, nine months ago, the hundreds are crossing all day long. Um, that area is not an area that Biden came to see. He didn't come to that area that was the epicenter nine months ago of the crisis because, much like in Shelby Park here in Brownsville, along that river, is miles of razor wire and obstruction that stopped and literally brought to a halt the crossings in this area. We did have a group of 100 that crossed this week since I've been covering it, and they used uh, bolt cutters to get through the wire, but it's far and few between. And so you're seeing that it works. And there's an irony in, I think, that President Biden came to an area that's one of the slowest now in the country to make his photo op and to make his visit to the border, which is actually a slow traffic area not because of things that his administration did, but because of things like obstructing or setting up obstructions like wall and razor fencing, which are policies that Biden uh, opposes, and yet Texas did it. And so he didn't want to have a photo op standing in front of what Texas did that did reduce crossings. Rather, he wanted to go and get a tour along uh, uh, the wall and the border here. And I think, you know, the American people see it. They see what's happening. They see things that work. And so I think those poll numbers, I would uh, predict to you, will continue to go up that Americans believe that they want to see wall construction. 
Okay, lastly, Griff, because you saw it with your own eyes, the man standing next to President Biden for most of his border trip was Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas, who was impeached by the House over his handling of this very border crisis. Um, the Senate had seemed disinterested, really, in holding an impeachment trial on, on their side. But now Minority Leader McConnell and South Dakota Senator John Thune, they say a trial is actually the best way forward after a group of Republican senators said, yeah, we should have one. Mayorkas maybe is not out of the woods. What, what's your, I guess, what's your take? What's your sense of the closeness President Biden feels with his secretary? Well, I think that, you know, I'll be surprised if the Mayorkas trial does get off the ground. And I was yeah. on Capitol Hill for days, you may recall, covering when <laughs> the House was impeaching uh, Mayorkas. And they're impeaching him for two reasons, Jessica. One is his dereliction failure to carry out the immigration laws in the books, meaning stopping people from illegally crossing. And then the other is lying to the American people because the administration, and he was the face of it, telling us for months and months, years, that the border was secure when in fact it wasn't. However, here's the problem, uh, and that is ultimately DHS Secretary Mayorkas is essentially an officer of the president. And so, you know, there is, I think, some reticence even amongst Republicans that, well, if this guy, who is the face of it, Mayorkas said this, is just carrying out his boss's policies, how do you hold him accountable? And that's why, you know, when our great reporter, Chet Berger and others often point out, it's been since like the 1800s, they impeached the secretary because ultimately they're just following their orders. Griff Jenkins, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And listen, we will continue to be on the border. And I'll just leave you with this, Jessica, and that is, you know, but for Fox News's efforts, not just me, but also Bill Malouge and Matt Finn, uh, Alexis McAdams, others that have spent months on in down on the border, I think that maybe the country wouldn't have seen it. We now see other networks and other media covering it because we put it on, on the front burner and let people see and decide for themselves what they make of it. But one thing is for sure, and you mentioned those polls, the American people are paying attention now, and it's going to be a big part of this year's election. Agreed. Thanks, Griff. Great to be with you. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Over the course of four presidencies and nine sessions of Congress, one person has led Senate Republicans, Kentucky's Mitch McConnell, but this week, he surprised many by announcing he will end his historic run at the end of this year. And for the first time since January of 2007, the GOP will have a new Senate leader. Father time remains undefeated. I'm no longer the young man sitting in the back hoping colleagues would remember my name. It's time for the next generation of leadership. 
In a speech on the Senate floor in which McConnell grew emotional, he made clear he's not going anywhere yet. He'll finish his term as Republican leader this year and intends to remain in the Senate as the senior senator from Kentucky through the 2026 midterms. I still have enough gas in my tank to thoroughly disappoint my critics. And I intend to do so with all the enthusiasm with which they've become accustomed. But McConnell's exit from leadership signals a big shift in the Republican Party. In the ensuing contest, to replace him will define a new era. Already, candidates have emerged. Texas Senator John Cornyn is officially in the race. Others will no doubt join in. Fox News senior congressional correspondent Chad Pergram has covered every day of McConnell's reign as leader, the longest tenure ever for a Senate leader. Mitch McConnell had told me that he had made the decision at the beginning of this Congress. It was just a question about when he was going to step aside. And I think for the people who are vying for his job, there are three main contenders, and I can talk about how they might not be the main contenders when we get to the actual vote in November. But John Cornyn, the former whip, uh, John Thune, the current whip, and John Barrasso from Wyoming, who, who is the Republican conference chairman, uh, that uh, basically they were kind of glad that he made this announcement early on so people can begin to plan. So you're right, it was a surprise because this was very closely kept. That's kind of signature Mitch McConnell played uh, very close to his political vest. Um, I think they were pleased with that. But here's the other factor that's so fascinating. In some respects, this was not a surprise. Um, as you know, Mitch McConnell has not been uh, on the same wavelength as uh, former President Trump, and that's putting it mildly, frankly, although I'm told that that was not as big a factor in this as you might think, especially if, uh, say, Mitch McConnell was going to still stick around and, uh, and President Trump, say, he wins in the fall. Obviously, they thought he might try to oust him, but uh, I'm told that that really wasn't a factor, that Mitch McConnell had made this decision some time ago. There was the health question. Uh, I think that there were some senators who really started to have questions about his viability after he had these freezing episodes. He had this bad fall last March and was out from the Senate for about six weeks. Uh, and, and he is 82. You, you know, he gave a pretty eloquent speech on the Senate floor. Mm-hmm. Mitch McConnell is not known for eloquence necessarily. He's <laughs> known for, for very straightforward political talk. And if you listen to him, as I say, listen to precisely what Mitch McConnell says, because he will tell you what he what he intends to do. And, 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 you know, people will listen to his speech and everything else and say, oh, no, he said this. I'm like, no, that's not quite what he said. But he grew emotional um, mm-hmm. and, and almost kind of teared up, uh, wept a little bit. I, I think that told you a lot about Mitch McConnell. There are some who have wondered if maybe this was a not so subtle signal to his former colleague and dear friend in the Senate, uh, President Biden. Maybe it's time Mm. to step aside. Um, You know, people forget just how close they were in the Senate and the fact, Jared, that in 2016, you had then Vice President Biden presiding over the Senate for the last time. This was in late December of 2016. The vice president is the president of the Senate and sometimes presides. And so Vice President Biden at the time came to the Senate for uh, kind of a farewell. And Mitch McConnell uh, on the floor in real time renamed uh, this uh, cancer bill for Bo Biden. We hear a lot mm-hmm. about Hunter Biden, but yeah. Bo Biden, the president's uh, other son who passed away from brain cancer, and that was an emotional scene. It so was. there's quite a bond between these two leaders. Yeah, I think what McConnell said was father time remains undefeated. Um, yes, and he's right about that. <laughs> um, 
you know, I, I was asked a, a couple of questions about Mitch McConnell uh, over the last several days. Obviously, you and I have both done a lot of reporting on on this. And he's been the only, by the way, Senate uh, Republican leader I've ever covered. I, I arrived uh, here in D.C. in the uh, fall of 2010. Um, he was already well into his uh, historic run as a uh, Republican leader. Um, I started and, with know, George Mitchell. There you go. I was going to ask. But there haven't Man. been many that you've covered, right? No. So. Well, well, George Mitchell. <laughs> Uh, you know, Bob Dole was Bob the Dole. Republican leader then, then became the Bill majority Frist. leader. Yeah. Uh, well, and in between Trent Lott, uh, yeah, then Bill Frist, oh, and, and then Harry um, Reid, Mitch McConnell, Chuck Schumer. Yeah, and, that's yeah, the universe on the Senate side. Not been, um, it's been, uh, yeah, a, a pretty short list of folks that, that Mitch McConnell finds himself in. But, you know, what I had said is that, you know, to be leader that long takes a certain skill to be able to speak to, you know, the needs of uh, your conference, kind of know the pressure points, when to use Mm -hmm. a stick, when to use a carrot. I think former Speaker Nancy Pelosi obviously had that same skill set that Mitch McConnell has. But have we seen over the last several months, whether it's through Ukraine, uh, Ukraine aid or whether it is through um, the uh, immigration agreement that, you know, that that grip that McConnell has had so long on Senate Republicans is slipping? Yes. And it's about the math, Um, because look at that vote for the international aid package a couple of weeks ago. Um, There was a point in time where McConnell was all for this. He was the biggest advocate for money for Ukraine than anybody in the Congress, either body, either party. And then it was clear that that was not going to move because he had Republicans saying we have to do border security. So he said, "Okay, we'll do border security. And then Republicans kind of moved the earth underneath of him saying, no, 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 we don't really want to do border security, even though. James Lankford, the Republican from Oklahoma, and uh, Kirsten Sinema, the independent from Arizona, and Chris Murphy, the Democrat from Connecticut, all put together a pretty good bill that, uh, that, that most people, if you're taking a, um, you know, a pretty serious look at this, would say, yeah, that, that, that's a, a pretty tough bill. I mean, there was real teeth in that compared to some of the, the criticism that some people have leveled at it. So that went away. But then look at the math on that vote for the international aid package. He could not even get half of his conference uh, to vote yes. There were 22 Republicans who voted yes. Okay, that's a sizable figure, but it's not uh, the 25. That's not half of 49. You know, and and so you know the writing's on the wall here. You're not getting half. Um, it, it was intimated to me in the past couple of days here that at the usual Tuesday Senate Republican lunches that there is this uh, pro MAGA show that goes on. Uh, Mike Lee from Utah. J.D. Vance from Ohio, mm-hmm. Ron Johnson from Wisconsin, and that some Republicans are, are getting tired of that. Now, people say, well, would he, you know, maybe lo- you know, lose his grip on the, the Republican conference now? You know, could they, they try to oust him now? Um, there's some internal rules and reasons why they might talk about that and why they might even have a meeting uh, to do that, but they're not going to prevail because that is a secret ballot. And Mitch mm-hmm. McConnell still has the support, even though he didn't have half of the conference on the international aid package, he still has the support of most of his Republicans. And keep in mind that when we get to that vote for whomever it might be on an icy, cold, blustery day in late November, maybe early December, uh, guess what? Uh, that is a, a secret ballot, too, and that's why it's hard to divine who might be his successor. 
You know, you mentioned that sort of MAGA show that happens at these weekly lunches. We, we certainly saw the influence of former President Trump as it relates to that immigration and border bill as well. Um, you know, Mitch McConnell had worked really closely on that emerging compromise with uh, Chuck Schumer. The two of them seemed to have an agreement. You heard uh, you saw that statement from McConnell where he said this is a time to act. This is a, a moment and an opportunity. And then he backed away from it after the former president uh, intimated that he did not think that this was the right strategy. Um, I asked that because what if in the next week or two or three, the former president puts on social media, why wait till November? Republicans should pick X senator right now to lead mm-hmm. them. Yeah, th- th- that's uh, that's a possibility. But again, senators are going to make their own decisions. And here's why we don't know how this is going to go in the fall. That universe has not formed. Um, we have to find out which party wins the presidency, mm-hmm. first of all. Um, and again, that might take control a couple of the of Senate weeks to figure out. Well, it might take a while to figure out control of the Senate, yeah. too. You know, right. I, I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, it took it took, you know, more than a week or, or about a week or so before we really knew who won the presidency in 2020. Yeah. Uh, it took us until January, early January to determine in 2021 who had won the Senate because of a runoff mm-hmm. in Georgia. So those factors could delay the leadership election. And let's say, you know, President Trump wins. Well, that will have, a, you know, an influencing factor here. Let's say President Trump uh, does not win. President Biden wins re-election. OK, that will have an influencing factor. Let's say Republicans get control of the Senate. And this is where I always talk about leadership elections, Jared, are not partisan politics. They are particle politics. Mm. Who gets into leadership? It is decided at the subatomic political level. What do I mean by that? You have all these political protons and, and, and leptons all, you know, whizzing around the, the super collider here, the political super collider. And you don't know. It's so microscopic, you can't tell. And case in point, this is how um, you had uh, this is how you had uh, the election of John Boehner as the majority leader before he became minority leader and speaker back in, in 2006. He was considered to be a dark horse in a race to succeed Tom DeLay. Uh, Kevin McCarthy was supposed to succeed, succeed John Boehner as speaker in 2015. Didn't work out quite yet. Worked out a little bit later, barely and not for long. Uh, Paul Ryan didn't want the job. You know who I left off my list earlier? Tom Daschle, who That's became right. the minority and then majority leader. But, but this is one of my favorite stories in all of politics, and it deals with leadership elections. And this, this tells you why. So it's a secret ballot. So back in 1994, I mentioned George Mitchell. He was retiring in early 1995, you know, 1994. Democrats had lost control of the Senate. So Ben Nighthorse Campbell was a then Democratic senator, Native American senator, rode a Harley, had a ponytail, wrestled for the United States judo team in the 1964 Olympics in Tokyo. Different kind kind of figure here. So Campbell was going to switch parties and become a Republican, which he didn't do until the spring, but Republicans had won control of the Senate. And what Campbell would try to do, being a Native American, is that he would always try to make sure that every vote he ever took was always consequential for Indian country. Mm. And so, you know, being in the majority party, that might have some influence, et cetera. So Campbell was going to switch parties, but he was still a Democrat in the fall of 1994. So George Mitchell was retiring and the Democrats were choosing a new Senate leader. The two candidates were Chris Dodd of Connecticut and Tom Daschle of South Dakota. Well, Tom Daschle won by one vote. (laughs) Now, who do you think that Ben Campbell (laughs) voted for? 
He That's voted right. a Connecticut Yankee or a man who represents the Sioux Nation South in South Dakota. Right. You yeah. got it. And that's why you had Leader Daschle and not Dodd. So. Particle politics. So I'm going to throw another name at you here. Two names. We've heard a little bit about Tom Cotton. He might be the MAGA mm-hmm. candidate here. Tom Cotton has expressed interest in a leadership position. Rick Scott, Republican from Florida. He already ran. challenged him once. Yes. But Rick Scott's damaged goods. Because he did not run a very good campaign when he ran the Republican political campaign arm for Senate seats in 2022. And in fact, tried to undercut McConnell, et cetera. Uh, and some Republicans will say, look, you had your chance. That's not going to work. So who do you look at? Let's say the Republicans, and this is where I talk about the universe has not formed. Let's say the Republicans have a really good year in the fall. They flip the Senate. They just don't flip the Senate. It's 51-49 or 52-48. It's 55-45 or something. Okay, they run the table. Steve Daines, Republican of Montana, who Mm. is the chair of the Republican political arm going into this cycle here and has made every single play the right way so far in terms of the Montana Senate race. That's a competitive race there. Uh, to some degree, the Ohio Senate race, up and down the board, he's done all the right things. Particle politics. We will really be able to explore this conversation in the fall, but not truly until the fall, Jared. Uh, Returning quickly to to McConnell and kind of his legacy, uh, I know obviously there has been a lot made about his very public disagreements with, uh, with former President Trump and this belief among many Senate Republicans that there needs to be a Republican leader who has a better relationship with Trump. That being said, when you look at the, the first couple of years of the Trump administration, what gets done without Mitch McConnell, right? I mean, that, that tax bill, the, the tax cut bill, the, the number of justice uh, justices on the Supreme Court, the federal mm-hmm. judiciary, that was all kind of ushered in by, by Mitch McConnell, wasn't it? Who took a pretty big gamble, by the way, in initially holding off on confirming uh, Merrick Garland to a Supreme Court seat um, in the final months of the Obama presidency. Yes, exactly. And that's where a lot of people will talk about, despite the the problems that Mitch McConnell had with uh, President Trump and vice versa. I mean, the reason, you know, probably the most consequential thing in terms of a legacy issue for former President Trump was what happened with the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. And that's all because of Mitch, Mitch McConnell. Even months before it was clear that Donald Trump was going to be the nominee of the Republican Party in 2016. What do I mean by that? Well, we had this unexpected vacancy on the Supreme Court in February of 2016 when Antonin Scalia died suddenly, the Supreme Court justice. And within hours, without consulting his conference, and this is sometimes the criticism of McConnell, is that he doesn't consult, he makes these calls. Uh, you know, in fact, Rick Scott said as much to me earlier today. Um, he said, we're not going to fill a Supreme Court seat in a presidential election year. Well, what yeah. happened after that? Okay, <laughs> well, two things. Three, four things, really. So, okay, so Merrick Garland never gets a hearing, never sits on the court. Okay, so that seat is open in 2017 with President Trump. So what does he do? He gets Neil Gorsuch in. Well, there had never been a filibuster of a Supreme Court justice to sit on the court. There had been a filibuster of promoting a sitting associate justice to chief justice. That was with Abe Fortas in 1968, but not to actually get somebody onto the court. Democrats were going to filibuster. And so what did McConnell do? And this is kind of taking a, a trick from the Harry Reid book. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he basically established a new procedural precedent, a nuclear option, as it's called around Capitol Hill, to go over um, the filibuster 
uh, you know, prevent a filibuster mm -hmm. and basically get Neil Gorsuch on the court. And then Brett Kavanaugh. Remember, that was quite an experience, that confirmation yep. battle. And then the piece de resistance came <laughs> in the fall of 2020. Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. That was an election suddenly. year, right, Chad? Uh, yeah, I, I'm shocked. <laughs> There's gambling in the casino, Jared. And it was it was September, and they got her through just days before just the days election. Before the election, yeah. And and, and what are and what are the consequences of that? Well, throwing I mean, out Roe v. Wade. Just look at what we have. Go yeah, I mean, it's see, it's see, remarkable. see these all all this, and it all started with Mitch McConnell's call without consulting his conference <laughs> on a late Saturday afternoon. In February of 2016. Seriously, so, that, that's the lineage right there. That's gonna, all Mitch McConnell, whether you like it or not. I want to finish the McConnell um, discussion just kind of like I had been asked kind of about my experiences covering him. And I said, you know, it, I was always struck by his reverence for the Senate. Like a lot of people who serve in the Senate, he he really reveres the institution as an institution, the history. And I uh, told the story. I think the first time I was in McConnell's office was probably 12, 13 years ago. I was new covering the Hill. Uh, he invited a couple of report radio reporters in for these sort of off camera gaggle sort of roundtables mm -hmm. he did. And it was my first time in in that office, which, as you know, Chad, used to be the Library of Congress. It is where the fire was set by the British in 1814. And mm -hmm. McConnell took great pleasure in kind of, you know, telling me the history and showing me that fireplace where the chip is in it, where there was a, a melee as, as they set the fire. And, uh, you know, it, it, you just think about the, the, the legacy of the Senate and the legacy he leaves behind. What do you, what's your McConnell story? Everybody's got one. Well, there's several. Uh, I just told you one there. Uh, one of the things I kind of enjoyed talking with him about, and, and you know this, that I, I um, have studied scotch and bourbon for mm -hmm. quite a while. And I had just been to Scotland, and I was sitting at a restaurant uh, near Capitol Hill, and he came out. He had had a fundraiser or an event of some sort and saw that I was drinking something. And he asked me if it was bourbon. It was not bourbon. It was a scotch. It was Laphroaig, which is from Scotland. And I said, I'm sorry to disappoint you. So I saw him a couple of days later, and I had just been to Scotland. And I said, I want to show you something. And um, I had been to class over there, Scotch school. And what they do in the, in the Scotch industry is they love to get their hands on a good Kentucky or Tennessee barrel. Uh, Tennessee whiskey, Jack Daniels, but Kentucky bourbon, Heaven Hill, Buffalo Trace, you get the idea. Mm -hmm. So I was at Glen Grant, which is a distillery in Scotland, in Speyside. And I was amazed going through, this was actually part of the class, going through looking at their barrels. And it's Kentucky barrel of bourbon after Kentucky barrel of bourbon after Kentucky barrel of <laughs> bourbon. And so I showed him the picture. I said, look at this photograph, all this Kentucky, you know, bourbon here. Because that what they do is they reuse the barrel. And mm -hmm. he says, they use our barrels to make their, their stuff? And I said, yes. He goes, well, that just proves that we make the best stuff. That's why they want, to, want our barrels. You know? And I thought that was pretty fun. And, you know, the Brought other Kentucky thing, too, is through that... through and through. Well, President Trump, you know, used to call him Old Crow. Right. And so Mitch McConnell figured out a way to kind of spin that because his favorite uh, whiskey, one of his favorite bourbons, is, 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 uh, is Old Crow. But more specifically, because of Henry Clay, was no, his favorite bourbon was Old Crow. And he said, I take it as a great honor to be called an Old Crow because that was Henry Clay, the, the statesman from Kentucky, who was a senator and, and was Speaker of the House, uh, probably the, the best known Kentuckian in politics besides Mitch McConnell, frankly. Uh, he said, I, I wear this as a badge of honor because Old Crow was Henry Clay's favorite whiskey.
don't think that's the way that former President Trump meant it. Um, I wanted to ask you about one more event this week, and that is obviously, you know, we have uh, the, the government shutdown averted and other right. kind of stopgap moving that, that date, that, that deadline around. That came about uh, after a big four meeting, the top congressional leaders meeting at the White House that I was uh, interested in because as they emerged from that meeting, the Speaker of the House came out by himself, Mike Johnson, and said that he had a follow-up one-on-one with President Biden to kind of lay out the Ukraine and border funding bills in those discussions. And, you know, you and I have kind of talked about how, you know, Johnson is still, I think, finding his way a little bit. This is a tough job. He, he didn't have a lot of training for it, kind of thrown into it. What is his relationship like at this point with uh, President Biden? Is that improving? Well, they really had no relationship at all. And it's hard. You know, there was a little bit of a relationship between Kevin McCarthy and President mm-hmm. Biden because, you know, McCarthy had been in leadership before, had been the majority leader, whip, you know, minority leader, et cetera. There was something there. Uh, but Johnson, you know, drinking out of the fire hose, you know, nobody <laughs> knew who Mike Johnson was in early October. You know, I mean, this was this is how quickly this is this has changed. So that's a big deal right there. So, you know, sometimes there are. Um, uh, you know, fellowship building exercises. And so, but, but that's something else that Johnson had been wanting to talk uh, with the president individually, wants some meetings. You know, there's a question about Ukraine. It's also mm-hmm. just trying to get to know somebody. You see, and that's where I talk about, uh, you know, McConnell and Biden. You know, it should not be lost on people that there was a relationship there mm-hmm. and will continue to be for at least the next few months. So that's, that's kind of important in, in that sense. Um, but but the fact that Johnson, you know, is, is having to deal with President Biden. And, you know, here's the other thing. You know, we don't know what's going to happen to Mike Johnson. I mean, he might there might be a motion to vacate the chair any minute. OK, he might not be, be speaker right away. Be. <laughs> uh, we don't know if Biden's going to be around after the, the election. You know, if he doesn't win, there's some speculation that maybe he doesn't truly run or become I means running right now, obviously. But, you know, is not the nominee or stands for reelection in the fall. We don't know. So, uh, you know, and this is where I say, you know, all this moves quickly. Um, you know, I talk about George Mitchell. You know, this is where, you know, not all the not not everybody is here in these positions forever. Yeah. Uh, you know, and even though Mitch McConnell was there an awful long time, uh, there have been a lot of other people who have been the majority or the minority leader of both parties. Well, as uh, McConnell said, Father Time is undefeated. Yep. Yep. We're all on the clock. Chad, appreciate the chat as always. Have a good weekend. Thank you. Tomorrow on the Fox News Rundown from Washington, Super Tuesday in a state of the union. Next week features two of the biggest political events so far this year. We will get you set for both from polling to expectations and how both nights can reshape the 2024 race. Until then, thanks for listening. I'm Jared Halpern. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com.